Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for being with me. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think your story is really great because you've worked in a country that everyone wants to visit, Fiji. And I read about the year that you spent there advising the Ministry of Economy. And I'm curious to know what sort of impact that had on you in terms of motivating you to work in climate and sustainability. What was a moment when you realized your work in Fiji was worth it to you? So there are kind of three that come to mind in different ways. One is the upside of working in Fiji is you get to live in Fiji. So <laughs> you get to yeah, I would you know, imagine. spend your weekends kind of touring the country and, and seeing all these, you know, some pretty stunning places. But part of what you also see are, you know, these, there are tons of villages that are right along the coast that don't have electricity that are from a climate perspective, kind of completely vulnerable. You know, you spend some time with the people, you hang out in the village and you realize that they're just incredibly kind, selfless people who should be able to continue to live as they've always lived in these villages and, and fishing and whatever. And recognizing that the work we do is trying to give give a voice to the Fijian government, trying to build capacity for the, the government to kind of adapt um, and get the resources they need to adapt, but then also kind of amplifying their story and, and using it to encourage the people who have a responsibility to get climate under control to do so and do so as, as aggressively as possible. So that kind of, I think, always you know stays with me. I'm curious about the nature of, of your work at WRI because I see it as like a nonprofit research group. But of course, it sounds like you have a lot of opportunity to actually implement what you research and help see tangible impact in the work you do. So what specifically drew you to, to WRI or to nonprofit research work in general? Before I joined WRI, I'd worked for kind of a consulting firm. I'd worked, I'd done some internships and um, with the U.S. government under Obama. So I'd kind of had a lot of time to think about impact. I think I found myself really wanting to do data-driven work. One thing I really value, actually, and really love about WRI is we're kind of like the quiet partners, you know, trying to broker all the deals. You know, I was drawn to WRI because they they really value the data, they value high impact, and they they have a, a wide network. And so, like, my team is working on some of kind of the most cutting edge issues in climate finance and tackling it in a lot of really distinctive ways. WRI is very much seen as kind of welcomed as like the credible voice at the table because we are so thorough with our research. We're able to present robust and data driven proposals that then carry a lot of weight with policymakers and institutions and other organizations and governments. It's just a really interesting space um, to, to work in. I think WRI combines sort of the flavor of consulting where you are advising an outside organization or you are an outside organization advising a government, for example. But of course, you know, it's nonprofit in its mission and it's driven by social values at the same time. I wouldn't call it like an advocacy group, but, you know, sort of an advisory group as yeah. well. That's yeah. kind of the impression I get. So it seems like a really great balance between having that consulting or professional impulse in your life, but also looking for social impact. Do you think yeah. that's fair? Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. And one thing I 
got sick of in the consulting space is the impacts and the, the mission are not necessarily interesting. <laughs> sure, um, sure. That's a little harsh. Like there, there's much more kind of, of a focus on how do we make as much money as possible from a particular project. There are people for whom that's really motivating and I'm just not one of those people. It seems to me like that kind of organization that WRI is, is so integral to sustainability and climate goals, because obviously the the most impactful work ultimately comes from the top down, from governments passing legislation and large corporations taking steps to change their business processes. But oftentimes that change doesn't come about at all if there's no pressure or if there's no people telling them that this is a good path. This isn't a a win-lose situation. You know, we can all gain from this. So I'm curious your take on how groups like WRI fit into the larger picture of solving climate change and whether, yeah, whether you think nonprofit research groups like WRI, nonprofit advisory groups like WRI, whether you think those constitute the best path to solving climate change, as I mentioned, I think it's, it's a central part, but is it sort of the golden ticket in your view? That's a huge question. So I'm going to tackle it in a few ways. Like one, I think at the end of the day, climate will get addressed when the rules and the structures and the policies we all live by make addressing climate the most important objective. The reality is at the end of the day, governments are the only people with the authority and the jurisdiction (laughs) to, to change. Well, they're the most obvious, I guess I'll put it that way. They're not the the only people, but they're the most obvious lover. That being said, I think a lot of governments are short-sighted. They're distracted. They have a lot of other priorities on their agenda. And there's a lot of kind of inertia baked into how government works. There's a lot of like, we just do what we've always done because that's what we do. I think companies, the business sector is motivated by the bottom line. The role, the value of organizations like WRI is that they are independent, robust, they, we can be nimble, we're data-driven, and we can keep a focus on climate as the central issue, and then hold both factors to account. WRI has written a ton about <laughs> how you know governments around the world are not stepping up and not doing their part. I have coworkers who are working with the banks and doing a lot on pushing the banks to be more transparent and more ambitious in how they're addressing climate. The climate space needs that sort of pressure from the outside, right? The public pressure, maybe it's the advocacy pressure. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking through how do you solve these problems? And then the idea is that's something that governments and institutions, you know, that have limited bandwidth that are, you know, trying to fight their own inertia can just pick up mm-hmm. the recommendations and, and go from there. And they don't have to solve all the problems by themselves. I think it's essential to have that kind of independent, ambitious, talented force, I guess, kind of pushing, pushing governments and pushing companies to act. Is it the golden ticket? I mean, I don't think there's a golden ticket, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's not the best analogy. <laughs> um, I think it's an essential part of the puzzle, but I don't yeah. think any single entity, any single institution by itself can tackle it. I think it's, you know, climate's yeah. too big of a, too big of a problem. I wish there was a golden ticket. That would would make all of our lives easier. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess with a golden ticket, the implication is it's very hard to find. So maybe there is. We just, we haven't found it yet. Yeah, we just haven't found it yet. That's true. I wanted to skip ahead to a question for later because I think it's a great bouncing off point. I wanted to ask about 
the path of running for office because mm-hmm. you interact a lot with lawmakers and perhaps elected officials in Fiji and maybe somewhat in the US too. Are there certain qualities that you have found are really helpful for a leader to be in public office and and tackle climate change productively? Like are there certain examples of people who you've worked with in Fiji who really stood out to you as this great mold of someone who goes into public service and becomes that change from within that mm-hmm. is so important. I've worked for a while with the attorney general, the Fiji attorney general, who mm-hmm. is kind of the second second in command in Fiji. And most of my work with him has been kind of in the in the international space. So helping his delegations at different meetings make sure their their talking points are are on yeah. par. The one consistent thing I think you see from every every government official who's really impactful is they're honest about the problem. They're incredibly knowledgeable about the details and the challenge that climate poses, but they're also optimistic or creative in seeing the opportunities it presents. And they're able to kind of articulate that vision in a range of settings. They can dive into the weeds on policy and generally are very passionate about the policy um, out of a recognition that policy matters. They're also aware that kind of personnel is policy. Really, really effective leaders bring together teams that are very talented, very knowledgeable, and very passionate about acting on climate. Having that team in place kind of creates all these other opportunities for them to move move the needle on climate. That's kind of what you, you know what you need. The attorney general, I've kind of helped, I've done a lot of work with him. We were in New York he, he was giving a speech on insurance with like a bunch of insurance executives. We walk into this meeting and it's a bunch of European and American businessmen all in their black and white suits in a gray building. Um, and the AG walks in and I <laughs> think he had a beige suit with a blue tie. And, you know, he was the only non-white person in the building, right? Yeah. They started asking him about insurance. And he's like, look, there are 300 islands in Fiji, 110 of them are inhabited. And it can take 14 to 20 hours on a boat to get to all the islands. 42, 50 villages in Fiji are at risk of being relocated. This isn't this like abstract issue that's fun to play around with in Excel sheets, right? For the Fijians, like this is a matter of life and death. And so hearing him deliver that message, be that messenger to this room of people for whom it's otherwise this very abstract, climate is this very abstract challenge. To me, that's like kind of the example of what a really effective government official, like how they approach the issue. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. And I, that makes me think about the question of whether it is more fulfilling or impactful to work on climate in a small country or a large country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure you have a great answer for this because on the one hand, a listener may think working in Fiji would be amazing. I can go to the beach and have this, this beautiful lifestyle, but... I believe that the most impact will come from me working in the U.S. and helping pass federal policy, for example. What do you tell those people who are convinced that the problem is so large that I need to focus on maybe working in the U.S.? What What are some of the benefits that you find about working in a smaller country where the issue might be a smaller scale purely in terms of dollars, but certainly might be more tangible? I think we need both. Right. We need really talented people working to get the U.S. on track 
But I think you also need really talented people stepping in to protect the most vulnerable. The upside of working in a really small place like Fiji is the, the levelers for impact are much more tangible. The number of stakeholders is more manageable. And there's one, there's one entity, right? So there's the Fijian government is the one that, that acts and they get, you know, advice from the development partners, but there's a national government. And then the change you make is you're helping people who have had nothing to do with climate. The insurance kind of platform I talked about at the beginning, that's helping farmers and fishermen who, many of whom don't have electricity, or if they have electricity, they have solar home systems. And these are people whose lives are already precarious and they will be made more precarious as climate gets worse. And so your kind of impact and your potential to really serve and protect the people who have had nothing to do with climate is tremendous. And, and there's really no, I think, no comparison if you're driven by the people impacts. There's no comparison for understanding what Fiji's view is in the climate space. So if you work in Fiji and your coworkers are Fijians and and even you read the headlines from <laughs> from Fiji, right? And and you just kind of have this like very personal connection with what it means to be a tiny vulnerable country. You approach the urgency from the US in a very different in a very different way. It makes climate the most urgent issue that the world can tackle because you've seen the beaches that are going to get wiped out. You've, you've spoken to the fishermen who can't get their, you know, who can't get their catches anymore. You know, even like in the last year, since COVID started, Fiji's had two category four or five cyclones come through. You know, you know that that means that there are houses that have had their roofs ripped apart and there are families that have had their whole lives upended. And I think that instills a, you know, a sense of right in everybody, right? That you need to act and you need to act to protect the people who, who have had nothing to do with the problem. Thank you for that. So just kind of to take stock for our listeners' sake, so far we've we've covered some great points about the benefits of nonprofit research and advisory work, especially with WRI, your ability to have more tangible impact. And I think we also covered some great points about leadership qualities, like being honest about the problem, knowledgeable, being optimistic and creative. I wanted to briefly go away from that those general points and hone in specifically on climate finance, because the way I view climate change in my mind, you can take the biggest chunk out of that problem by making governments act and act in meaningful ways. There are really two approaches in my mind. You can help governments develop the will, which means helping them develop legislation and have that mindset. And then you can give them the means to actually deliver on that. And that I think is where climate finance fits in, where of course you're developing goodwill toward climate solutions, but you're actually empowering governments to have the money to actually act on what they want to do. So in other words, to me, I think climate finance is is among the most important sectors in the climate sphere in terms of taking the biggest chunk out of that problem. Do you think that climate finance is the most important or among the most important solutions to climate change? I guess at this point, yeah. we, know, we know there's no one answer. So I'll just say among the most important. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's well phrased, but I think it's kind of like the closest you can get maybe to trying to kind of change the system as quickly as possible, I guess is is the way I'd, I'd phrase it. So climate finance is trying to say, to acknowledge that money is what makes the world go round. That means every single investment has a decision 
at some point, right? Whether it's an intentional decision or not, which is, will this investment be aligned with climate resilient, low carbon pathways or will it not? The more money, and if you look specifically at where is the money flowing and is it going to kind of low carbon climate resilient pathways, then you can also say, to get there, you need to change your electricity policy. You need to promote more, you know, sustainable transport options. You need to, you know, you need to align your incentives to make sure that forests are protected and not cut down. You can do that through the lens of acknowledging that you need to align your financial levers, your kind of climate considerations, and they need to be, they need to be matched. And if those are matched, then the system will move so much faster we have to do two things. We have to stop making the problem worse and we have to start making it better. So we have to make sure that we are no longer allocating finance to building coal plants, to you know building out oil, to cutting down forests, to all of the things that we know got us into this problem to begin with. And then we need to shift that so that all of that money is instead helping us you know, create a better future. Even though I think it's like the single quickest way to shift the system, it's also one of the least understood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I barely understand it. So that makes sense. (laughs) Most people don't. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, I'm curious about the question of political will. And for a place like the United States, does political will to act on climate change follow the funding is in your experience, do you think climate finance is the first step and then the goodwill will come or do you have to build that goodwill first? Right now, I think climate finance is the quickest way for the U.S. government to get a lot of goodwill back. Mm -hmm. Climate finance is is seen as the down payment on, on words. So especially in the international space, public climate finance, which is where I am, is kind of looking at how much money are institutions willing to lend out to support climate action throughout the world. From the perspective of countries like Fiji and other developing countries, right? There's not a lot of trust in the system. There are not a lot of other levers that vulnerable countries have to kind of compel domestic political change in the large emitters. And so finance is kind of the space where Countries like the United States can prove that their money is literally where their mouth is, right? That they are going to back up everything they've said, everything they say in speeches, everything that they're telling other countries to do. They're going to back it up with money and manpower and political will. But Mm -hmm. if you didn't have the money on the table, it would be easy to write every single speech off. It would be easy to ignore every single summit held by whoever, Every country has heard a lot of empty promises, empty commitments, all that stuff. That is a compelling case for climate finance. (laughs) (laughs) This is one more question about WRI's mission and climate finance in your work specifically, and then we'll turn to sort of our concluding questions. I'm curious about your take on where sustainability fits into solving other global challenges besides climate change. I may have read this in one of your papers, maybe not, but in my thoughts, I've I've very much connected sustainable development to things like global health and education and inequality, these really important global challenges that people also want to solve. For example, with education, sustainable development could help free up young girls' time from farming and hauling water and 
help them get into the classroom and build better lives for themselves. For our viewers who who want to make the biggest difference, do you think that sustainable natural resource management and that sort of idea that WRI advocates for, and this is another kind of big question, is that among the best solutions to global challenges in general, not just climate? I got really interested in sustainability. Kind of in my mid-20s, I just spent a lot of time traveling. I think the one that really crystallized it for me was, you know, going to Hanoi and, and Southeast Asia, like the pollution. And it's the same, you know, you could go to India and it's even worse. But for me, the, the crystal clear moment was was in Vietnam. And, you know, the, the water is polluted to the point where it's not safe to drink. The air pollution, this is, you know, coming from a spoiled, you know, I at the time grew up in Colorado where we have really good air quality. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, As an Oregonian, you know, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you spend time in these cities where the air pollution is so bad that you either are coughing all the time or, you know, you just feel your health falling apart. That's actually a pretty awful way to live, right? And that is a very unsustainable way, way to live. And that's particularly kind of traps subsistence farmers and other communities that are just now trying to figure out how to improve their economic development trajectories, it really traps them and it undermines their health. It undermines their quality of life. It undermines their education and all this other stuff. I think the only path (laughs) um, to addressing global inequality, to improving health outcomes, to even kind of promoting economic development is recognizing that we need, humans need good environmental conditions. We need good social base, and we need secure economic livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And all three of those need to be managed and kind of intentionally managed together. That's the challenge ahead of us. And I think that would be true even if climate was not an issue. We have an environmental mismanagement pervasive across the board. And the unfortunate reality is climate will make all of that worse. So climate will exacerbate every single existing stress in the system. It undermines education and health outcomes kind of across the board, but particularly in countries, you know, that are just now trying to sort out how do you transition women and girls out of collecting wood or out of being the homemakers. Addressing climate will require building out whole new skill sets. Therein lies a huge opportunity for improving education, for promoting job growth, and for really kind of changing the way we think about our communities, our kind of economic livelihoods, and the environment across the board. That's great. I think climate change or the environment as a challenge really has two parts in my view. The one is solving climate change and preventing environmental mismanagement. And on the other hand, it's building these long-term sustainable practices that Mm -hmm. prevent us from getting in in a similar mess down the road. And I love how you brought up those, those big three needs that we have and how living sustainably and in harmony with your environment is perhaps the best way to deliver on those those big three needs. In the young generation that I'm a part of, people view climate change as such a big issue. But I think it's helpful to realize that if they work in this space or if they try to do what they can to help solve it, they're actually doing a great deal of good in other areas too. They are. The climate challenge is such a huge challenge that there are thousands of different pathways to be acting on climate and to be addressing a lot of these other issues. I wanted to turn to a question about small acts that mm-hmm. people can take and, and then we'll, 
we'll conclude. How can listeners advance sustainability and fight climate change in the span of a single day? My mom actually asked me that a couple of weeks ago, like totally yeah. unrelated. <laughs> I think it's a lot of things, right? I think it's being intentional about how you're using energy. How often are you driving your car? Being intentional about like where you're living. So if you're strategic and living in somewhere where you then have good walking access or good biking access to a lot of your day-to-day activities, right? You can walk to the grocery store, you can walk to get your coffee, you can walk to your exercise class, or you can bike to those places or bike to work. That right there is taking off the table a lot of emissions that are easy to send out without even thinking about it. It's much easier to do <laughs> when you're younger and you're kind of still building out your habits and routines, right? Yeah. To the our earlier conversation about sustainability, it also is like so much better for your peace of mind if it's I'm gonna walk to the grocery store, I'm gonna get my exercise in while I'm, you know, riding my bike wherever. It's just good for mental and physical health as well. So that's one. I think the other is looking at your electricity company. My electricity company is Excel and they have an option to sign up for hundred percent renewable energy. Sure, maybe, you know, you pay, I think you pay a little bit more, but to me, that's worth it because you're sending a signal to Excel that the demand is there for 100% renewable energy. And that's really easy. It takes five minutes, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's really important. I think a lot of it is being mindful about your packaging and your waste. Set up a compost bin in your apartment and find find a place to compost. And then the last thing I would say is being just like, really thoughtful. This is actually the question my mom asked, but really thoughtful about your plastics use, reusing bags, you know, reusing produce bags at the grocery store, bringing your own bag to the grocery store, not taking plastic bags, going out of your way to buy products that are recycled and reusable and, um, and stuff like that. And, you know, recognizing that that's not always possible, but doing it at every time you think about it or every time you can is really important. It sends a demand signal to companies that people want recycled and sustainable products. And then that, that is where the market is. And that's really how you shift, shift demand. I, I wanted to close with a couple of, of bigger questions. Stepping back from sustainability, what do you, and this is a question, by the way, that I, I ask all our guests. I think it's a great way to end these. What do you tell people who want to change the world, but don't know how? Start small. Start small, I think is what I would say. Think about the thing that makes you excited. You know, the thing that you rambled to your friends about when they want you to shut up. That's an indication that that's something you're really passionate about. Find other people in your in your immediate area that are passionate about the same thing and just trust that it's a process and that you can have a huge impact on your family, your community, your organization, and that alone will ripple. That has a ripple effect. The idea of changing the world sounds very intimidating and almost inaccessible, right? The world is too big and, you know, it's far more manageable to think about it in terms of like, well, what can I change and who can I influence and how, who can I inspire? And if you're inspiring the people closest to you to live better lives, then they in turn will inspire the people closest to them to live better lives. And that's how you get a ripple effect. And then I'd also say, think of it as a kind of lifelong or iterative process. Start out in one direction and see where you go. You know, more often than not, (laughs) the first attempt doesn't work, you know, and you look at some of the most impactful people, their lives are littered with false starts and resets and recalibration efforts. And just acknowledge that that's part of the process and, and every setback is an opportunity to learn 
you know, learn about yourself, learn about what really makes you tick. I love that. Last question. I know you love the outdoors. You and I have (laughs) that in common. And I, I think that might inform your answer. What will the world look like once climate change is under control, if and when, and and we begin living sustainably. What What is that future in your eyes? It looks like a lot of things. So some things won't look that different, right? Like I think that we will see kind of solar panels and wind turbines along the highways when you drive across in your electric vehicle. I think we'll see a lot of green roofs. You know, a lot of buildings will be built with either it's green roofs or solar panels on top, but kind of these very integrated designs. I think we'll have... <laughs> we won't have plastics. We'll have, you know, I don't know if it's compostable containers or kind of recycled packaging, but we'll have a lot of kind of much more sensitivity to the importance of reusing the materials we have. I think from kind of a bigger perspective, like Colorado will still have a ski season, uh, which is huge. The skies in California won't turn orange every summer. Miami will be there, like the you know the coastal cities we kind of still admire and love to vacation in will still be destinations. I think in general, like you'll just sense that the world is more stable. Even last week, you know, watching Texas shut down because it got blasted by a, a cold storm and couldn't handle the grid. Those kinds of like really shocking life as we know it comes to an end events. We will have figured out how to manage them and to navigate mm-hmm. them. Oh, I think the last thing I'd say is I think there will also be a lot more vegetation everywhere. Or, you know, sidewalks, I don't know if they'll be concrete. I would love personally to see not concrete sidewalks, much less asphalt, more kind of flexible electric vehicle transport options. I think it'd be a pretty cool world to live in, though. So I hope we get there. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Caitlin Smith. Caitlin, thank you so much for an inspiring conversation. Yeah, thanks, Will. Great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you.